Chapter One of The Lion's Skin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carol Pelster. The Lion's Skin by Raphael Sabatini. The Fanatic. Mr. Carroll, lately from Rome, stood by the window, looking out over the rain-swept, steaming keys to Notre-Dame on the island yonder. Overhead rolled and crackled the artillery of an April thunderstorm. And Mr. Carroll, looking out upon Paris, in her shroud of rain, under her pall of thundercloud, felt himself at harmony with nature. Over his heart, too, the gloom of storm was lowering, just as in his heart it was still little more than April time. Behind him, in that chamber, furnished in dark oak and leather of a rain or two ago, sat Sir Richard Everard, at a vast writing-table, all a litter with books and papers, and Sir Richard watched his adoptive son with fierce, melancholy eyes, watched him, until he grew impatient of this pause. Well, demanded the old baronet harshly, will you undertake it, Justin, now that the chance has come? And he added, you'll never hesitate if you are the man i have sought to make you mr carroll turned slowly it is because i am the man that you that god and you have made me that i do hesitate his voice was quiet and pleasantly modulated and he spoke english with the faintest slur perceptible perhaps only to the keenest ear of a french accent to ears less keen it would merely seem that he articulated with a precision so singular as to verge on pedantry the light falling full upon his profile revealed the rather singular countenance that was his own it was not in any remarkable beauty that its distinction lay for by the canons of beauty that prevail it was not beautiful the features were irregular and inclined to harshness. The nose was too abruptly arched, the chin too long and square, the complexion too pallid. Yet a certain dignity haunted that youthful face, of such a quality as to stamp it upon the memory of the merest passer-by. The mouth was difficult to read and full of contradictions. The lips were full and red, and you would declare them the lips of a sensualist. But for the line of stern, almost grim determination in which they met. And yet, somewhere behind that grimness, there appeared to lurk a haunting whimsicality. A smile seemed ever to impend, but whether sweet or bitter, none could have told, until it broke. The eyes were as remarkable, wide-set and slow-moving, as becomes the eyes of an observant man. They were of an almost greenish color, and so level in their ordinary glance as to seem imbued with an uncanny penetration. His hair, 
he dared to wear his own and clubbed it in a broad ribbon of watered silk was almost of the hue of bronze with here and there a glint of gold and as luxuriant as any wig for the rest he was scarcely above the middle height of an almost frail but very graceful slenderness and very graceful too in all his movements in dress he was supremely elegant with the elegance of france that in england would be accounted foppishness he wore a suit of dark blue cloth with white satin linings that were revealed when he moved it was heavily laced with gold and a ramiform pattern broidered in gold thread ran up the sides of his silk stockings of a paler blue jewels gleamed in the brussels at his throat and there were diamond buckles in his lacquered red-heeled shoes sir richard considered him with anxiety and some chagrin justin he cried a world of reproach in his voice what can you need to ponder whatever it may be said mr carroll it will be better that i ponder it now than after i have pledged myself but what is it what demanded the baronet i am marvelling for one thing that you should have waited thirty years sir richard's fingers stirred the papers before him in an idle absent manner into his brooding eyes there leaped the glitter to be seen in the eyes of the fevered of body or of mind vengeance said he slowly is a dish best relished when tis eaten cold he paused an instant then continued i might have crossed to england at the time and slain him should that have satisfied me what is death but peace and rest there is a hell we are told mr carroll reminded him ay was the answer we are told but i durstn't risk its being false where ostermore is concerned so i preferred to wait until i could brew him such a cup of bitterness as no man ever drank ere he was glad to die in a quieter retrospective voice he continued had we prevailed in the fifteen i might have found a way to punish him that had been worthy of the crime that calls for it we did not prevail moreover i was taken and transported what think you justin gave me courage to endure the rigors of the plantations cunning and energy to escape after five such years of it as had assuredly killed a stronger man less strong of purpose what but the task that was awaiting me it imported that i should live and be free to call a reckoning in full with my lord ostermore before i go to my own account opportunity has gone lame upon this journey but it has arrived at last unless he paused his voice sank from the high note of exaltation to which it had soared it became charged with dread as did the fierce eyes with which he raked his companion's face 
unless you prove false to the duty that awaits you and that i'll not believe you are your mother's son justin and my father's too answered justin in a thick voice and the earl of ostermore is that same father the more sweetly shall your mother be avenged cried the other and again his eyes blazed with that unhealthy fanatical light what fitter than the hand of that poor lady's son to pull your father down in ruins ha 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 he laughed short and fiercely it seldom chances in this world that justice is done so nicely you hate him very deeply said mr carroll pensively and the look in his eyes betrayed the trend of his thoughts they were of pity but of pity at the futility of such strong emotions as deeply as i loved your mother justin the sharp rugged features of that seared old face seemed of a sudden transfigured and softened the wild eyes lost some of their glitter in a look of wistfulness as he pondered a moment the one sweet memory in a wasted life a life wrecked over thirty years ago wrecked wantonly by that same ostermore of whom they spoke who had been his friend a groan broke from his lips he took his head in his hands and elbows on the table he sat very still a moment reviewing as in a flash the events of thirty and more years ago when he and viscount rotherby as ostermore was then had been young men at the st germain's court of james the second it was on an excursion into normandy that they had met mademoiselle de maligny the daughter of an impoverished gentleman of the chative noblesse of that province both had loved her she had preferred as women will the outward handsomeness of viscount rotherby to the sounder heart and brain that were dick everard's as bold and dominant as any ruffler of them all where men and perils were concerned young everard was timid and bashful and without assertiveness with women he had withdrawn from the contest ere it was well lost leaving an easy victory to his friend and how had that friend used it most foully as you shall learn leaving rotherby in normandy everard had returned to paris the affairs of his king gave him cause to cross at once to ireland for three years he abode there working secretly in his master's interest to little purpose be it confessed at the end of that time he returned to paris rotherby was gone it appeared that his father lord ostermore had prevailed upon bentinck to use his influence with william on the errant youth's behalf rotherby had been pardoned his loyalty to the fallen dynasty a deserter in every sense he had abandoned the fortunes of king james 
which in Everard's eyes was bad enough, and he had abandoned the sweet lady he had fetched out of Normandy six months before his going, of whom it seemed that in his lordly way he was grown tired. From the beginning it would appear they were ill-matched. It was her beauty had made appeal to him, even as his beauty had enamoured her. Elementals had brought about their union, and when these elementals shrank with habit, as elementals will, they found themselves without a tie of sympathy or common interest to link them each to the other. She was by nature blithe, a thing of sunshine, flowers, and music, who craved a very poet for her lover. And by a poet I mean not your mere rhymer. He was downright stolid and stupid under his fine exterior, the worst type of Britain, without the saving grace of a Briton's honour. And so she had wearied him, who saw in her no more than a sweet loveliness that had cloyed him presently, and when the chance was offered him by Bentinck and his father, he took it and went his ways. And this sweet flower that he had plucked from its Normandy garden to adorn him for a brief summer's day was left to wilt discarded. The tale that greeted Everard on his return from Ireland was that, broken-hearted, she had died, crushed neath her load of shame, for it was said that there had been no marriage. The rumour of her death had gone abroad, and it had been carried to England and my Lord Rotherby by a cousin of hers, the last living Maligny, who crossed the channel to demand of that stolid gentleman satisfaction for the dishonour put upon his house. All the satisfaction the poor fellow got was a foot or so of steel through the lungs of which he died, and there, may it have seemed to Rotherby, the matter ended. But Everard remained. Everard, who had loved her with a great and almost sacred love. Everard, who swore black ruin for my lord Rotherby, the rumour of which may also have been carried to his lordship, and stimulated his activities in having Everard hunted down after the Braemar fiasco of 1715. But before that came to pass, Everard had discovered that the rumour of her death was false, put about, no doubt, out of fear of that same cousin who had made himself champion and avenger of her honour. Everard sought her out, and found her perishing of want in an attic in the Cour des Miracles, some four months later, eight months after Rotherby's desertion. In that sordid, wind-swept chamber of Paris' most abandoned haunt, a son had been born to Antoinette de Maligny, two days before Everard had come upon her both were dying both had assuredly died within the week but that he came so timely to her aid 
and that aid he rendered like the noble-hearted gentleman he was he had contrived to save his fortune from the wreck of james kingship and this was safely invested in france in holland and elsewhere abroad with a portion of it he repurchased the chateau and estates of maligny which on the death of antoinette's father had been seized upon by creditors thither he sent her and her child rotherby's child making that noble domain a christening gift to the boy for whom he had stood sponsor at the font and he did his work of love in the background he was the god in the machine no more no single opportunity of thanking him did he afford her he effaced himself that she might not see the sorrow she occasioned him lest it should increase her own for two years she dwelt at maligny in such peace as the broken-hearted may know the little of life that was left her irradiated by everard's noble friendship he wrote to her from time to time now from italy now from holland but he never came to visit her a delicacy which may or may not have been false restrained him and she respecting what instinctively she knew to be his feelings never bade him come to her in their letters they never spoke of rotherby not once did his name pass between them it was as if he had never lived or never crossed their lives meanwhile she weakened and faded day by day despite all the care with which she was surrounded that winter of cold and want in the corps des miracles had sown its seeds and death was sharpening his scythe against the harvest when the end was come she sent urgently for everard he came at once in answer to her summons but he came too late she died the evening before he arrived but she had left a letter written days before against the chance of his not reaching her before the end that letter in her fine french hand was before him now i will not try to thank you dearest friend she wrote for the thing that you have done what payment is there in poor thanks oh everard everard had it but pleased god to have helped me to a wiser choice when it was mine to choose she cried to him from that letter and poor everard deemed that the thin ray of joy her words sent through his anguished soul was payment more than enough for the little that he had done god's will be done she continued it is his will he knows why it is best so though we discern it not but there is the boy there is justin i bequeath him to you who already have done so much for him 
love him a little for my sake cherish and rear him as your own and make of him such a gentleman as are you his father does not so much as know of his existence that too is best so for for i would not have him claim my boy never let him learn that justin exists unless it be to punish him by the knowledge for his cruel desertion of me choking the writing blurred by tears that he accounted no disgrace to his young manhood everard had sworn in that hour that justin should be as a son to him he would do her will and he set upon it a more definite meaning than she intended rotherby should remain in ignorance of his son's existence until such season as should make the knowledge a very anguish to him he would rear justin in bitter hatred of the foul villain who had been his father and with the boy's help when the time should be ripe he would lay my lord rotherby in ruins thus should my lord's sin come to find him out this everard had sworn and this he had done he had told justin the story almost as soon as justin was of an age to understand it he had repeated it at very frequent intervals and as the lad grew everard watched in him fostering it by every means in his power the growth of his execration for the author of his days and of his reverence for the sweet departed saint that had been his mother for the rest he had lavished justin nobly for his mother's sake the repurchased estates of maligny with their handsome rent-roll remained justin's own administered by sir richard during the lad's minority and vastly enriched by the care of that administration he had sent the lad to oxford and afterwards the more thoroughly to complete his education on a two years tour of europe and on his return a grown and cultured man he had attached him to the court in rome of the pretender whose agent he was himself in paris he had done his duty by the boy as he understood his duty always with that grim purpose of revenge for his horizon and the result had been a stranger compound than even everard knew for all that he knew the lad exceedingly well for he had scarcely reckoned sufficiently upon justin's mixed nationality and the circumstance that in soul and mind he was entirely his mother's child with nothing or an imperceptible little of his father as his mother's nature had been so was justin's joyous but everard's training of him had suppressed all inborn vivacity the mirth and diablerie that were his birthright had been overlaid with british phlegm until in their stead and through the blend a certain sardonic humour had developed an ironical attitude toward all things whether sacred or profane this had been helped on by culture 
and in a still greater measure by the odd training in worldliness which he had from everard his illusions were shattered ere he had cut his wisdom teeth thanks to the tutelage of sir richard who in giving him the ugly story of his own existence taught him the misanthropical lesson that all men are knaves all women fools he developed as a consequence that sardonic outlook upon the world he sought to take vos non vobis for his motto affected to a spectator in the theatre of life with the obvious result that he became the greatest actor of them all so we find him even now his main emotion pity for sir richard who sat silent for some moments reviewing that thirty-year dead past until the tears scalded his old eyes the baronet made a queer noise in his throat something between a snarl and a sob and he flung himself suddenly back in his chair justin sat down a becoming gravity in his countenance tell me all he begged his adoptive father tell me how matters stand precisely how you propose to act with all my heart the baronet assented lord ostermore having turned his coat once for profit is ready now to turn it again for the same end from the information that reaches me from england it would appear that in the rage of speculation that has been toward in london his lordship has suffered heavily how heavily i am not prepared to say but heavily enough i dare swear to have caused this offer to return to his king for he looks no doubt to sell his services at a price that will help him mend the wreckage of his fortunes a week ago a gentleman who goes between his majesty's court at rome and his friends here in paris brought me word from his majesty that ostermore had signified to him his willingness to rejoin the stuart cause together with that information this messenger brought me letters from his majesty to several of his friends which i was to send to england by a safe hand at the first opportunity now amongst these letters delivered to me unsealed is one to my lord ostermore making him certain advantageous proposals which he is sure to accept if his circumstances be as crippled as i am given to understand atterbury and his friends seems have already tampered with my lord's loyalty to dutch george to some purpose and there is little doubt but that this letter and he tapped a document before him will do what else is to be done but since these letters were left with me come you with his majesty's fresh injunctions that i am to suppress them and cross to england at once myself to prevail upon atterbury and his associates to abandon the undertaking mr carroll nodded because as i have told you said he king james in rome has received positive information that in london the plot is already suspected little though atterbury may dream it but what has this to do with my lord ostermore this said everard slowly 
leaning across towards Justin and laying a hand upon his sleeve. I am to counsel the bishop to stay his hand against a more favorable opportunity. There's no reason why you should not do the very opposite with Ostermore. Mr. Carroll knit his brows, his eyes intent upon the other's face, but he said no word. It is, urged Everard, an opportunity such as there may never be another. We destroy Ostermore. By a turn of the hand, we bring him to the gallows. He chuckled over the word with a joy almost diabolical. But how, how do we destroy him? quoth Justin, who suspected, yet dared not encourage his suspicions. How? Do you ask how? Is it not plain? snapped Sir Richard, and what he avoided putting into words, his eloquent glance made clear to his companion. Mr. Carroll rose a thought quickly, a faint flush stirring in his cheeks, and he threw off Everard's grasp with a gesture that was almost of repugnance. You mean that I am to enmesh him? Sir Richard smiled grimly. As his majesty's accredited agent, he explained, I will equip you with papers. Word shall go ahead of you to Ostermore by a safe hand to bid him look for the coming of a messenger bearing his own family name. No more than that, nothing that can betray us, yet enough to whet his lordship's appetite. You shall be the ambassador to bear him the tempting offers from the king. You will obtain his answers, accepting those you will deliver to me, and I shall do the trifle that may still be needed to set the rope about his neck. A little while there was silence. Outside, the rain, driven by gusts, smote the window as with a scourge. The thunder was grumbling in the distance now. Mr. Carroll resumed his chair. He sat very thoughtful, but with no emotion showing in his face. British stolidity was in the ascendant with him then. He felt that he had the need of it. It is ugly, he said at last, slowly. It is God's own will, was the hot answer, and Sir Richard smote the table. "'Has God taken you into his confidence?' wondered Mr. Carroll. "'I know that God is justice. "'Yet is it not written that vengeance is his own? "'Aye, but he needs human instruments to execute it. "'Such instruments are we. "'Can you—oh, can you hesitate?' "'Mr. Carroll clenched his hands hard. Do it, he answered through set teeth. Do it. I shall approve it when tis done. But find other hands for the work, Sir Richard. He is my father. Sir Richard remained cool. That is the argument I employ for insisting upon the task being yours, he replied. Then, in a blaze of passion, he, who had schooled his adoptive son so ably in self-control, marshaled once more his arguments. It is your duty to your mother. 
to forget that he is your father. Think of him only as the man who wronged your mother, the man to whom her ruined life, her early death are due, her murderer, and worse. Consider that. Your father, you say? He mocked almost. Your father, in what is he your father? You have never seen him. He does not know that you exist, that you ever existed. Is that to be a father? Father, you say, a word, a name, no more than that, a name that gives rise to a sentiment, and a sentiment is to stand between you and your clear duty. A sentiment is to set a protecting shield over the man who killed your mother. I think I shall despise you, Justin, if you fail me in this. I have lived for it, he ran on tempestuously. I have reared you for it, and you shall not fail me. Then his voice dropped again, and in quieter tones, you hate the very name of John Carroll, Earl of Ostermore, said he, as must every decent man who knows the truth of what the life of that satyr holds. If I have suffered you to bear his name, it is to the end that it should remind you daily that you have no right to it, that you have no right to any name. When he said that, he thrust his finger consciously into a raw wound. He saw Justin wince, and with pitiless cunning he continued to prod that tender place, until he had aggravated the smart of it into a very agony. That is what you owe your father. That is the full extent of what lies between you that you are of those at whom the world is given to sneer and point scorn's ready finger. None has ever dared, said Mr. Carroll. Because none has ever known, we have kept the secret well. You display no coat of arms that no bar sinister may be displayed. But the time may come when the secret must out. You might for instance think of marrying a lady of quality a lady of your own supposed station what shall you tell her of yourself that you have no name to offer her that the name you bear is yours by assumption only ah that brings home your own wrongs to you justin consider them have them ever present in your mind together with your mother's blighted life, that you may not shrink when the hour strikes to punish the evildoer. He flung himself back in his chair again and watched the younger man with brooding eye. Mr. Carroll was plainly moved. He had paled a little, and he sat now with brows contracted and set teeth. Sir Richard pushed back his chair and rose, recapitulating. He is your mother's destroyer, he said with a sad sternness is the ruin of that fair life to go unpunished is it justin mr carroll's gallic spirit burst abruptly through its british glaze he crushed fist into palm and swore no by god it shall not sir richard 
Sir Richard held out his hands, and there was a fierce joy in his gloomy eyes at last. "'You'll cross to England with me, Justin?' But Mr. Carroll's soul fell once more into travail. "'Wait!' he cried. "'Oh, wait!' His level glance met Sir Richard's in earnestness and entreaty. "'Answer me the truth upon your soul and conscience.' do you in your heart believe that it is what my mother would have had me do there was an instant's pause then everard the fanatic of vengeance the man whose mind upon that one subject was become unsound with excess of brooding answered with conviction as i have a soul to be saved justin i do believe it more i know it here trembling hands took up the old letter from the table and proffered it to justin here is her own message to you read it again and what time the young man's eyes rested upon that fine pointed writing sir richard recited aloud the words he knew by heart the words that had been ringing in his ears since that day when he had seen her lowered to rest never let him learn that justin exists unless it be to punish him by the knowledge for his cruel desertion of me it is your mother's voice speaking to you from the grave the fanatic pursued and so infected justin at last with something of his fanaticism the green eyes flashed uncannily the white young face grew cruelly sardonic you believe it he asked and the eagerness that now invested his voice showed how it really was with him as i have a soul to be saved sir richard repeated then gladly will i set my hand to it fire stirred through justin now a fire of righteous passion an idea no more than an idea daunted me you have shown me that i cross to england with you sir richard and let my lord ostermore look to himself for my name i who have no right to any name my name is judgment the exaltation fell from him as suddenly as it had mounted he dropped into a chair thoughtful again and slightly ashamed of his sudden outburst sir richard everard watched with an eye of gloomy joy the man whom he had been at such pains to school in self-control overhead there was a sudden crackle of thunder sharp and staccato as a peal of demoniac laughter End of chapter one